section eighteen chapters fifty one to fifty three of the three sisters by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter fifty one there was no prayer time at the vicarage any more there is no more time at all there as the world counts time the hours no longer passed in a procession marked by distinguishable days they rolled round and round in an interminable circle monotonously renewed monotonously returning upon itself the vicar was the centre of the circle the hours were sounded and measured by his monotonously recurring needs but the days were neither measured nor marked they were all of one shade there was no difference between sunday and monday in the vicarage now they talked of the vicar's good days and his bad days that was all for in this house where time had ceased they talked incessantly of time but it was always his time the time for his early morning cup of tea the time for his medicine the time for his breakfast the time for reading his chapter to him while he dozed the time for washing him for dressing him for taking him out he went out now in a wheelchair drawn by peacock's pony the time for his medicine again his, his dinner time the time for his afternoon sleep his tea time the time for his last dose of medicine his supper time and his time for being undressed and put to bed and there were several times during the night which were his times also the vicar had desired supremacy in his vicarage and he was at last supreme he was supreme over his daughter gwenda the stubborn intractable creature was at his feet she was his to bend or break or utterly destroy she who was capable of anything was capable of an indestructible devotion his times the relentless the monotonously recurring were her times too if it had not been for stephen rowcliffe she would have had none to call her own except night-time when the vicar slept but rowcliffe had kept to his days for visiting the vicarage he came twice or thrice a week not counting wednesdays only though mary did not know it he came as often as not in the evenings at dusk just after the vicar had been put to bed when it was wet he sat in the dining-room with gwenda when it was fine he took her out on to the moor under carva they always went the same way up the green sheep track that they knew they always turned back at the same place where the stream he had seen her jumping ran from the hill and they always took the same time to go and turn they never stopped and never lingered but went always at the same sharp pace and kept the same distance from each other it was as if by saying to themselves never any further than the stream never any longer than thirty-five minutes never any nearer than we are now they defined the limits of their whole relation sometimes they hardly spoke as they walked they parted with casual words and with no touching of their hands and with the same thought unspoken till the next time but these times which were theirs only did not count as time they belonged to another scale of feeling and another order of reality their moments had another pulse another rhythm and vibration they burned as they beat while they lasted gwenda's life was lived with an intensity that left time outside its measure through this intensity she drew the strength to go on to endure the unendurable with joy but rowcliffe could not endure the unendurable at all he was savage when he thought of it that was her life and she would never get away from it she who was born for the wild open air and for youth and strength and freedom would be shut up in that house and tied to that half-paralyzed half-imbecile old man forever it was damnable and he rowcliffe could have prevented it if he had only known 
and if mary had not lied to him and when his common sense warned him of their danger and his conscience reproached him with leading her into it he said to himself i can't help it if it is dangerous it's been taken out of my hands if somebody doesn't drag her out of doors she'll get ill if somebody doesn't talk to her she'll grow morbid and there's nobody but me he sheltered himself in the immensity of her tragedy its darkness covered them her sadness and her isolation sanctified them alice had her husband and her child mary had all she wanted gwenda had nobody but him she had never had anybody but him for in the beginning the vicar and his daughters had failed to make friends among their own sort up in the dale there had been few to make in those few mr carteret had contrived to alienate one after another by his deplorable legend and by the austere unpleasantness of his personality people had not been prepared for intimacy with a vicar separated so outrageously from his third wife nobody knew whether it was he or his third wife who had been outrageous but the vicar's manner was not such as to procure for him the benefit of any doubt the fact remained that the poor man was handicapped by an outrageous daughter and alice's behaviour was obviously as much the vicar's fault as his misfortune and it had been felt that gwenda had not done anything to redeem her father's and her sister's eccentricities and that mary though she was a nice girl had hardly done enough for the last eighteen months visits at the vicarage had been perfunctory and very brief month by month they had diminished and before mary's marriage they had almost ceased still mary's marriage had appeased the parish mrs stephen rowcliffe had atoned for the third mrs carteret's suspicious absence and for gwenda carteret's flight lady frances gilby's large wing had further protected gwenda then suddenly the tale of alice carteret and greatorex went round and it was as if the vicarage had opened and given up its secret at first the sheer extremity of his disaster had sheltered the vicar from his own scandal through all garthdale and rathdale in the manors and the lodges and the granges in the farmhouses and the cottages in the inns and little shops there was a stir of pity and compassion the people who had left off calling at the vicarage called again with sympathy and kind inquiries they were inclined to forget how impossible the carterets had been they were sorry for gwenda but they had been checked in their advances by gwenda's palpable recoil she had no time to give to callers her father had taken all her time the callers considered themselves absolved from calling slowly month by month the vicarage was drawn back into its silence and its loneliness it assumed more and more its aspect of half sinister half sordid tragedy the vicar's calamity no longer sheltered him it took its place in the order of accepted and irremediable events only the village preserved its sympathy alive the village that obscure congregated soul long-suffering to calamity welded together by saner instincts and profound in memory the soul that inhabited the small huddled humbled houses divided from the vicarage by no more than the graveyard of its dead the village remembered and it knew it remembered how the vicar had come and gone over its thresholds how no rain nor snow nor storm had stayed him in his obstinate and punctual visiting and whereas it had once looked grimly on its vicar it looked kindly on him now it endured him for his daughter gwenda's sake in spite of what it knew for it knew why the vicar's third wife had left him it knew why alice carteret had gone wrong with greatorex it knew what gwenda carteret had gone for when she went away 
it knew why and how dr rowcliffe had married mary cartaret and it knew why night after night he was to be seen coming and going on the garthdale road the village knew more about rowcliffe and gwenda cartaret than rowcliffe's wife knew for rowcliffe's wife's mind was closed to this knowledge by a certain sensual assurance when all was said and done it was she and not gwenda who was rowcliffe's wife and she had other grounds for complacency her sister a solitary miss carteret stowed away in garth vicarage was of no account she didn't matter and as mary carteret mary would have mattered even less but stephen rowcliffe's professional reputation served him well he counted people who had begun by trusting him had ended by liking him and in two years time his social value had become apparent and as mrs stephen rowcliffe mary had a social value too but while stephen who had always had it took it for granted and never thought about it mary could think of nothing else her social value obscured by the terrible two years in garthdale had come to her as a discovery and an acquisition for all her complacency she could not regard it as a secure thing she was sensitive to every breath that threatened it she was unable to forget that if she was stephen rowcliffe's wife she was alice greatorex's sister even as mary carteret she had been sensitive to alice but in those days of obscurity and isolation it was not in her to cast alice off she had felt bound to alice not as gwenda was bound but pitiably irrevocably for better for worse the solidarity of the family had held she had not had anything to lose by sticking to her sister now it seemed to her that she had everything to lose the thought of alice was a perpetual annoyance to her for the neighbourhood that had received mrs stephen rowcliffe had barred her sister as long as alice greatorex lived at upthorne mary went in fear this fear was so intolerable to her that at last she spoke of it to rowcliffe they were sitting together in his study after dinner the two armchairs were always facing now one on each side of the hearth i wish i knew what to do about alice she said what to do about her yes am i to have her at the house or not he stared of course you're to have her at the house i mean when we've got people here i can't ask her to meet them well you must ask her it's the very least you can do for her people aren't going to like it stephen people have got to stick a great many things they aren't going to like i'm continually meeting people i'd rather not meet aren't you i'm afraid poor alice is is what well dear a little impossible to say the least of it isn't she he shrugged his shoulders i don't see anything impossible about poor alice i never did it's nice of you to say so he maintained himself in silence under her long gaze stephen she said you are awfully good to my people she saw that she could hardly have said anything that would have annoyed him more he positively writhed with irritation i'm not in the least good to your people the words stung her like a blow she flushed and he softened can't you see molly that i hate the infernal humbug and the cruelty of it all that poor child had a dog's life before she was married she did the only sane thing that was open to her you've only got to look at her now to see that she couldn't have done much better for herself even if she hadn't been driven to it what's more she's done the best thing for greatorex there isn't another woman in the world who could have made that chap chuck drinking you mayn't like the connection i don't suppose any of us like it my dear stephen it isn't only the connection i could get over that it's the other thing his blank stare compelled her to precision i mean what happened 
well if gwenda can get over the other thing i should think you might she has to see more of her it's different for gwenda how is it different for gwenda she hesitated she had meant that gwenda hadn't anything to lose what she said was gwenda hasn't anybody but herself to think of she hasn't let you in for alice no more have you he smiled mary did not understand either his answer or his smile he was saying to himself oh hasn't she it was gwenda all the time who let me in mary had a little rush of affection my dear i think i've let you in for everything i wouldn't mind i wouldn't really if it wasn't for you you needn't bother about me he said i'd rather you bothered about your sister which sister for the life of her she could not tell what had made her say that the words seemed to leap out suddenly from her mind to her tongue alice he said was it alice we were talking about it was alice i was thinking about was it again her mind took its insane possession of her tongue the evening dragged on the two chairs still faced each other pushed forward in their attitude of polite attention and expectancy but the persons in the chairs leaned back as if each withdrew as far as possible from the other they made themselves stiff and upright as if they braced themselves each against the other in the unconscious tension of hostility and they were silent each thinking an intolerable thought rowcliffe had taken up a book and was pretending to read it mary's hands were busy with her knitting her needles went with a rapid jerk driven by the vibration of her irritated nerves from time to time she glanced at rowcliffe under her bent brows she saw the same blocks of print a deep block at the top a short line under it then a narrower block she saw them as vague meaningless blurs of grey stippled on white she saw that rowcliffe's eyes never moved from the deep top paragraph on the left-hand page she noted the light pressure of his thumbs on the margins he wasn't reading at all he was only pretending to read he had set up his book as a barrier between them and he was holding on to it for dear life rowcliffe moved irritably under mary's eyes she lowered them and waited for the silken sound that should have told her that he had turned a page and all the time she kept on saying to herself he was thinking about gwenda he's sorry for alice because of gwenda not because of me it isn't my people that he's good to the thought went round and round in mary's mind troubling its tranquillity she knew that something followed from it but she refused to see it her mind thrust from it the conclusion then it's gwenda that he cares for she said to herself after all i'm married to him and as she said it she thrust up her chin in a gesture of assurance and defiance in the chair that faced her rowcliffe shifted his position he crossed his legs and the tilted foot kicked out urged by a hidden savagery the clicking of mary's needles maddened him he glanced at her she was knitting a silk tie for his birthday she saw the glance the fierceness of the small fingers slackened they knitted off a row or two then ceased her hands lay quiet in her lap she leaned her head against the back of the chair her grieved eyes let down their lids before the smouldering hostility in his her stillness and her shut eyes moved him to compunction they appeased him with reminiscence with suggestion of her smooth and innocent sleep he had been thinking of what she had done to him of how she had lied to him about gwenda of the abominable thing that alice had cried out to him in her agony the thought of mary's turpitude had consoled him mysteriously instead of putting it from him he had dwelt on it he had wallowed in it he had let it soak into him till he was poisoned with it for the sting of it and the violence of his own resentment were more tolerable to rowcliffe 
than the stale dull realization of the fact that mary bored him it had come to that he had nothing to say to mary now that he had married her his romantic youth still moved uneasily within him it found no peace in an armchair facing mary he dreaded these evenings that he was compelled to spend with her he dreaded her speech he dreaded her silences ten times more they no longer soothed him they were pervading menacing significant he thought that mary's turpitude accounted for and justified the exasperation of his nerves now as he looked at her lying back in the limp pose reminiscent of her sleep he thought poor thing poor molly he put down his book he stood over her a moment sighed a long sigh like a yawn turned from her and went to bed mary opened her eyes sighed stretched herself put out the light and followed him chapter fifty two not long after that night it struck mary that stephen was run down he worked too hard that was how she accounted to herself for his fits of exhaustion of irritability and depression but secretly for all her complacence she had divined the cause she watched him now she inquired into his goings out and comings in sometimes she knew that he had been to garthdale and though he went there many more times than she knew she had noticed that these moods of his followed invariably on his going it was as if gwenda left her mark on him so much was certain and by that certainty she went on to infer his going from his mood one day she taxed him with it rowcliffe had tried to excuse his early morning temper on the plea that he was beastly tired tired she had said of course you're tired if you went up to garthdale last night she added it isn't necessary he was silent and she knew that she was on his trail two evenings later she caught him as he was leaving the house where are you going she said i'm going up to garthdale to see your father her eyes flinched you saw him yesterday i did is he worse he hesitated lying had not as yet come lightly to him i'm not easy about him he said she was not satisfied she had caught the hesitation can't you tell me she persisted if he's worse he looked at her calmly i can't tell you till i've seen him that roused her she bit her lip she knew that whatever she did she must not show temper did gwenda send for you her voice was quiet she did not he strode out of the house after that he never told her when he was going up to garthdale toward nightfall he was sometimes driven to lie it was up rathdale he was going or to greffington or to smoke a pipe with ned alderson or to turn in for a game of billiards at the village club and whenever he lied to her she saw through him she was prepared for the lie she said to herself he's going to see gwenda he can't keep away from her and then she remembered what alice had said to her you'll know some day she knew chapter fifty three and with her knowledge there came a curious calm she no longer watched and worried rowcliffe she knew that no wife ever kept her husband by watching and worrying him she was aware of danger and she faced it with restored complacency for mary was a fount of sensual wisdom rowcliffe was ill and from his illness she inferred his misery and from his misery his innocence she told herself that nothing had happened that she knew nothing that she had not known before she saw that her mistake had been in showing that she knew it that was to admit it and to admit it was to give it a substance a shape and colour it had never had and was not likely to have and mary having perceived her blunder set herself to repair it she knew how 
under all his energy she had discerned in her husband a love of bodily ease and a capacity for laziness undeveloped because perpetually frustrated insidiously she had set herself to undermine his energy while she devised continual opportunities for ease rowcliffe remained incurably energetic his profession demanded energy still there were ways by which he could be captured he was not so deeply absorbed in his profession as to be indifferent to the arrangements of his home he liked and he showed very plainly that he liked good food and silent service the shining of glass and silver white table linen and fragrant sheets for his bed with all these things mary had provided him and she had her own magic and her way her way the way she had caught him was the way she would keep him she had always known her power even unpractised she had always known by instinct how she could enthrall him when her moment came gwenda had put back the hour but she had done and mary argued that therefore she could do no more here mary's complacency betrayed her she had fallen into the error of all innocent and tranquil sensualists she trusted to the present she had reckoned without rowcliffe's future or his past and she had done even worse by habituating rowcliffe's senses to her way she had produced in him through sheer satisfaction that sense of security which is the most dangerous sense of all end of section eighteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine